0: Welcome to another edition of the McKnight's Long-Term Care News Market Leaders Podcast, where industry experts share their insights and seeds of success are planted. I'm Jim Berklin, Executive Editor for McKnight's, and I'm here today with Omnicare's Director of Clinical Nursing, Corey Bishop, and Lead Director of Performance and Measurement, Carrie O'Shea. We're here to discuss the challenges and opportunities with the delivery of monoclonal antibodies in post-acute and long-term care facilities. We'll also be looking into novel treatments for COVID and how providers can get access to the medications. Corey, let's start with you. What has your experience been with obtaining monoclonal antibodies for patients in the SNF and ALF settings?
1: Well, that's a great question, Jim. It's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, we started out with having access or getting access to monoclonal antibodies in December of 2020. Um, and that was really at the hands of help from our partners at ASCP, um, the American Society for Consultant Pharmacists. They worked uh, diligently and tirelessly with the federal government to um, open up what's called the Federal Speed Program, and that allowed long-term care pharmacy providers to order directly from Amerisource Bergen, which made it much easier for us to access monoclonal antibodies. And then what happened is as the um, the increased utilization of some of the first monoclonal antibodies that were available as, as customers started to use them more and then we saw some increases in um, COVID outbreaks, the government perceived that there may have been or they thought they might run short. So in September, they closed the direct order p- portal and all monoclonal antibodies then were going... To, To got allocated to the state. So um, long-term care providers are now at the mercy of the states to allocate monoclonal antibodies to the long-term care space. So that has presented, you know, some significant challenges to us. And we've had to work with many state departments of health to educate them on the need for allocating more monoclonal antibodies to the long-term care space rather than to acute care. So we've worked pretty closely with a lot of state departments of health, and I think the overarching message when I'm speaking with the Department of Health is that, you know, monoclonal antibodies, none of them are are really intended for use in hospitalized patients. That's not part of the authorization. So if the states are allocating to hospitals, that means that hospitals are administering monoclonal antibodies to patients in their ambulatory care setting to patients that are ambulatory and not leaving the lion's share to patients that are a most vulnerable segment of our population. And those are patients that are living in congregate care settings like long-term care, assisted living, or independent living. That message has been received really well. Uh, many of the states, uh, you know, get it and have started to allocate monoclonal antibodies to us and, and sort of understand the need to get the drug to our space.
0: Okay, great. Now, what are the main challenges with the current monoclonal ad- antibodies that are available for
1: use? So right now, the challenge is actually the the there's a significant shortage. So we we saw a real historic <laughs> change in what happened with monoclonal antibodies. We had lots of products um, available to us in the early part of 2021 when bamlanivimab and then bamlanivimab atasevimab and then um, we saw the Regeneron product, um, Regen Cove. We had a lot of product available to us and we had trouble with prescribers, getting them to prescribe it as they became more comfortable using monoclonal antibodies. um, We were doing great. We had plenty of product available. We were able to transfer product across state lines. And, you know, I am very proud to say that we were able to service every single patient in our space that we had orders for that needed monoclonal antibody. But then we saw, you know, the government sort of clamp down and um, distribution changed in September. And then when um, the prevalence of Omicron increased, we lost uh, the availability to use bamlin evimab and Regencove because they are not effective against um, Omicron. So that left us with only one monoclonal antibody available, which is cetrovimab, and it's in short supply. It continues to be in short supply today. Now, the good news is that last Friday, Bebtilevimab received an authorization. So that is another monoclonal antibody that we can use that's effective for treatment of COVID-19. So now we have two, again, still in rather short supply. We expect delivery of Bebtilevimab sometime this week or next week based on, again, the states allocating to the long-term care pharmacies.
0: Okay, great. Can you discuss remdesivir and how that differs from monoclonal antibodies in terms of procuring the treatment and administration in SNFs and ALFs?
1: Yeah, so remdesivir is an interesting drug in that it's been, um, it's actually an FDA-approved antiviral for the treatment of COVID-19, and we've been trying to get it in our space since January of 2021, um, it, it has an approval for use in the hospital setting. So the manufacturer was really pretty adamant that they did not want to release remdesivir outside of hospitals. They, they really didn't want it in the outpatient space or in long-term care space. And I think that with the help of the federal government and, uh, you know, many providers and trade organizations really pushing Gilead, the manufacturer, to make it available to us, we finally um, saw a change in the authorization. So it's now FDA approved for the outpatient setting, and we do have access to the drug. There is, you know, certainly some concerns with using remdesivir in a space. It's not like administering a monoclonal antibody, which is a one and done, right? The patient gets the infusion, the facility monitors the patient for an hour and therapy is done, with remdesivir in the outpatient setting, it is a three-day course of therapy. So on on day one, they get a loading dose of 200 milligrams IV. It has to run over an hour to two hours, depending on the patient's condition. And then they get a second dose on day two and a a third dose on day three. So the problem with that is that's a pretty heavy lift for our long-term care customers. You know, one it's IV, and that's, you know, sort of the challenge with the current monoclonal antibodies, as they, they are IV, like monoclonal antibodies for treatment of COVID-19 have to be administered IV. And with the current situation and long-term care, that's a big lift. But remdesivir is three days of therapy. It requires pretty close laboratory monitoring, You know, looking at a patient's GFR, looking at liver function tests. Um, so in, it, it really is a heavy lift for facilities, but we do have limited access to it. Um, It's also not part of the federal program. So the monoclonal antibodies that have authorization for use for treatment of COVID-19 are part of the federal program and they're free of charge. At this time, you know, remdesivir is not part of the federal program. So there's a pretty hefty cost associated with using that drug.
0: All right. Excellent. Now, Terry, there are two oral antivirals available for treatment. Can you uh, discuss the distribution and clinical challenges around the oral COVID-19 therapies?
2: Sure, absolutely, Jim. Um, thanks for the question. Just to level set, the the two oral antivirals that are now currently available are Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. Both of those agents received a uh, an emergency use authorization, or EUA, from the FDA in late December. And really, two Common challenges with both of those agents, the first is much like Corey has alluded to with the monoclonal antibodies, there's a relative shortage of product. There's relatively more Molnupiravir available than Paxlovid. But fortunately, um, supplies are increasing as time goes on, and more and more long-term care pharmacies are gaining access uh, to these agents. The other isn't so much a distribution challenge, but one of the clinical challenges that's common to uh, both of these is that the EUA states that the uh, individual has to test positive for SARS-CoV-2, they have to be in a non-hospitalized setting, of course, and then that the um, medications both have to be started within five days of symptom onset. So in some cases, um, not that often, hopefully these days, at least in the long-term care setting, sometimes that timing restriction uh, becomes an issue. But thankfully, I think uh, the turnaround time for tests and things uh, have have gotten better. Um, they were kind of dicey during the the heat of Omicron, but I think they're improving now. So, you know, those certainly are challenges. And then, you know, there are individual challenges, clinical challenges, if you will, with each of the medications. So I'll start with Paxlovid. So the thing to understand about Paxlovid is it's actually a combination drug, but it's not a combination drug where the combination is in one tablet, if you will. It, they're actually separate tablets. So Paxlovid is actually a combination of the drug nirmatrelvir, which is a new antiviral that does have um, effectiveness against SARS-CoV-2. And, and it's in combination with ritonavir, which is a medication that's been around for quite some time, it has been traditionally used uh, to treat HIV. The uh, ritonavir component has absolutely no effectiveness or efficacy against um, SARS-CoV-2. It's included in the combination strictly to increase the blood levels of nirmatrelvir. The issue that comes around with the combination uh, actually are a couple fold. One is that ritonavir has a large, large number of drug interactions in the EUA. There's close to a hundred different medications listed that interact with the ritonavir component of, of Paxlovid. So, you know, obviously Paxlovid in, in total. So there are uh, a number of, a pretty large number of drugs actually that are contraindicated. Um, if, a, if a resident's receiving that drug, they should not receive Paxlovid. And obviously, you know, your long-term care pharmacies will, will know about those interactions. The other thing is that interactions are because of potentially increasing the blood levels of nermatrovir, um, which might have toxicity that, again, it's a newer agent, so we don't really know for sure what those might be. But then there's also agents that shouldn't be given with Paxlovid because they increase the metabolism of Paxlovid, and they they're, you know, might render that ineffective. So, you know, some, some baggage, if you will, there. Um, another clinical challenge I'll highlight quickly is that Paxlovid does require dosing adjustment for folks with kidney disease, So if um, folks have what's called a GFR glomerular filtration rate, which is, you know, a measure of kidney function, if, if that number is over 60, then the dosing is, you know, just as normal as it would come in the dosing card. If the GFR is between 30 and 60, however, the dose of nermatrelvir, you know, per dosage each day in normally it's two tablets of nermatrovir per each dose that has to be reduced to one nermatrovir tablet in those with, you know, that range of kidney function. And, um, if their number is less than 30, it, the drug should not be used. It's contraindicated. So there are some dosing, um, you know, considerations and it makes it really important for prescribers when they're prescribing Paxlovid to indicate on the order, the number of nermatrovir and number of ritonavir tablets to be given uh, for each dose, which will, you know, obviously make them think about and assess uh, that resident's renal function.
0: Okay, outstanding. Now, uh, let's get into this a little bit more. When should we consider, let's emphasize, when should we consider using Paxlovid and molnupiravir?
2: Yeah, so again, you know, the EUA says that it should be used, these can be used in non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate uh, COVID-19, so which means obviously a positive SARS-CoV-2 test as well as um, mild to moderate symptoms who are at risk, at high risk of progression to severe COVID-19 that uh, may even result in hospitalization or death. So it really comes down to an assessment by the prescriber uh, based on resident specific factors as to, you know, if they have a scenario where uh, a resident, you know, does have symptoms, you know, are they really at high risk of progressing to severe COVID-19? And that can be, you know, based on the prescriber's knowledge of the resident clinically, whether they have um, that whether they're immunocompromised, whether they have comorbidities, such as uh, diabetes or cardiovascular disease or respiratory disease, or, or maybe obese. So it's really, you know, a resident specific assessment um, at this point as to whether to use it. So um, in a scenario where um, there really aren't any contraindications to use either, so you could use either Paxlovid or Molnupiravir, The NIH has developed treatment guidelines that are uh, hierarchical in a way where they say that the first-line treatment for somebody with mild to moderate COVID-19 at high risk of progression would be Paxlovid. And then that's followed by Citrovimab, um, which is followed by Remdesivir, and then finally Molnupiravir. And as far as um, the hierarchy goes, that's really based on the outcomes in the clinical trials. Um, So for the orals. So Paxlovid had about an 88% reduction in hospitalization and death in their clinical trial. Um, comparatively, Molnupiravir's number was 30%. So by that, you can see why Paxlovid is um, higher up on the first line therapy treatment chain, if you will.
0: Okay, now a couple of big topics. Uh, what are the current and future states of vaccines and boosters? Something on everybody's mind, of course.
2: Absolutely, sure. Through the 6th of February, um, CDC data shows that about 88% or yeah, 87 to 88% of residents in nursing homes have received the initial vaccine series, while about 68% have received the initial series plus either a third dose for those who are immunocompromised or a booster dose. In contrast, uh, the staff numbers are actually pretty close in terms of the initial series. About 86% of nursing home staff have received the initial series. Um, However, only about 35% of staff have received either a third dose if they're immunocompromised or a booster dose. So, you know, obviously still, uh, still some room for improvement there. A lot of press has been given to whether there's going to be an Omicron specific vaccine uh, that comes out. And while there are two of those in testing uh, in the U.S., the jury's really still out on that in terms of the fact that early findings seem to show that they are not that much more effective than the original vaccines, um, at least at this time. And then, um, you know, a lot of attention is being paid to what intervals sh- these boosters should be given as obviously you've seen that needle move a little bit um, recently. And, you know, a lot of the data, as uh, many of you know, is coming out of Israel, where they've had a large percentage of their populations actually received a second booster. So really, so a fourth dose, if you will. And then, um, you know, about 25% of the US population has received um, a booster as well. So uh, certainly more to come on that. And then, Finally, looking into the crystal ball a little bit, as far as the future goes, some of you may have heard the company Novavax has applied for an EUA with the FDA um, just a few weeks ago uh, for their vaccine. Their vaccine's a little bit different than any of the currently available ones, where it's a protein subunit vaccine that has an adjuvant, which is an additional agent that's not biologic, but stimulates the immune response. So we'll see how that goes. But there's a lot of excitement around that as the Novavax vaccine is actually seen and described as more of a traditional vaccine, such as other types of vaccines that have been used in the past and are on the market. And then finally, even uh, a further look into the future is there's a lot of research going on in the area of intranasal vaccines, where um, obviously it's uh, the vaccines being directed to the area where... SARS-CoV-2 enters the body and there is thought that there might be some uh, increased protection and increased efficacy for prevention of the spread of infection, not just, you know, the progression of severe disease, but actually the transmission of infection. If you're delivering the vaccine, you know, right to the area where uh, SARS-CoV-2 first enters the body. So other things are out there as well, but I'll limit it to that for now. And, um, you know, lots of exciting stuff happening.
0: Okay. Now, one thing really curious about, so many people wonder, and there's been some discussion, can you project, is it known, is this going to be an annual thing? I know you talked about the frequency of boosters. What can providers look forward to? I mean, will this just be possibly once a year, like a a quote unquote, regular flu shot? Do we know that yet?
2: We don't know that yet. Um, There's speculation, but we really don't know the answer to that. There's thought that COVID may be transforming to something more like seasonal illness, colds, flu, and that would potentially render it more a annual uh, vaccine, but it's really too early to tell, Jim.
0: Okay, excellent. Uh, Great answer on that. Now, Corey, I'd like to go back to you a little bit. How are staffing challenges impacting the delivery of COVID-19 therapeutics?
1: Jim, I think before we go into staffing, we'd be remiss if we did not talk about Evershield. And Evershield is a monoclonal antibody that is available for patients um, that are not anticipated, that are severely immunocompromised and they don't anticipate they can really mount an adequate immune response from the vaccine. Evasheld, however, is pre-exposure. So it's not a monoclonal antibody that you would use for treatment. It is pre-exposure. It was initially um, released and, and most states did allocate it to hospitals and tertiary care centers where the intended audience was patients that had immune disorders or patients that were receiving chemotherapy. So we did not receive any in the initial um, releases. We didn't receive any in the long-term care space. However, we are starting to see some states allocate Evichel to long-term care pharmacies. Um, And I think partly because they didn't see the utilization they anticipated, In the hospital, but again, that is a drug that is for pre-exposure. It is IM, so it's not a heavy lift to administer it, but it's pre-exposure and intended for severely immunocompromised patients.
0: This is also fascinating, but Corey, can we talk a little bit about staffing challenges and how they are impacting the delivery of COVID-19 therapeutics?
1: so yeah let's talk about the staffing shortages they've been you know there's no secret to anyone it's been a significant challenge for long-term care providers post-acute providers um at the beginning of the the pandemic we had cdc warning that if you were over 60 years of age and you that you are you know risk for severe disease that you should you know stay home so we saw pay, people in the workforce the healthcare workforce that were working either past retirement or had the ability to stop working, they did. They didn't, you know, they were they were at severe risk. They didn't want to contract COVID. And of course, we we know that, you know, there was a high percentage of patient deaths in long-term care um, due to COVID-19. So that really, I think, scared a lot of healthcare workers into leaving the field. We're not seeing a huge improvement our customers, our long-term care um, facilities are using a lot of agency staff. So when we start to think about, you know, administering monoclonal antibodies, the two that we have available, bebtilovimab and citrovimab are IV only. And administering IVs in a long-term care facility that's short staffed is using agency. They may not have staff that have the competencies to administer IVs. So then they have to rely on either bringing in agencies to, to do that or you know, infusion companies to do that. So it's been a huge challenge, um, be, particularly because um, of the, the mode of administration, IV, and not having the staff available. Now Part of that is when you're administering a monoclonal antibody, it may be just a 20 minute infusion, 30 minute infusion, but you still have to monitor that patient for an hour and it requires close monitoring. So really if you have an outbreak in your building and you have to administer monoclonal antibodies to several patients, it's going to tie up a a staff member for the whole day, um, just doing the monitoring the administration and monitoring. So, so definitely significant concerns and, and challenges with staffing. I think, you know, just overall managing you know, COVID patient, COVID positive patients in long term care facilities has been a challenge because because of the staffing shortages.
0: Terry, do you have a take on this part of the equation with staffing?
2: In, in terms of the orals, not nearly, um, not nearly to the extent that the parenteral agents uh, have issues. Certainly, they're both. Paxlovid and molnupiravir are multiple tablets given twice a day. So, you know, there's obviously that, that pill burden concern in, in our population that often takes uh, lots of medications uh, at baseline, but um, not, not nearly to the extent that um, that the monoclonals and uh, and remdesivir face. So okay. luckily the orals obviously are, um, you know, a good, a good option now that are, that's finally available. And, you uh, Quantities are increasing, so, you know, really very positive, I think, that uh, our treatment options are increasing in number, so, uh, as well as the way they are administered, so.
0: Well, well, there's no question. Everybody's looking for any bright spot we can on the uh, staffing spectrum on that, so anything that can help that. Well, Corey and Terry, thank you for your time today and for sharing this wonderful insight. We've been speaking with Corey Bishop and Terry O'Shea with Omnicare, and we'd like to thank you for listening to this edition of the McKnight's Long-Term Care News Market Leaders Podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time. I'm Jim Berkland, wishing you good health and outstanding days ahead.